Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider podcast, where we bring an independent eye in interviewing the targets of SPAC transactions and their SPAC partners. Should de-SPAC'd companies be buying back their shares rather than making offers for their warrants? For Abacus Life, at least, the answer is yes. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Marlena Haddad and I speak with Abacus Life Chairman and CEO Jay Jackson. Jay tells us why his company's stock has managed to perform well in the six months since closing its SPAC combination, and why he has taken the unorthodox decision to buy back shares rather than deal immediately with Abacus Life's warrant overhang. We also discuss the future of the company's business of acquiring life insurance policies and how it is now engaging directly with policyholders and the insurance issuers as clients. With many years at work investing in such policies, what has the data told Abacus Life about longevity and long-term health itself? Take a listen. So Jay, you closed your combination with East Resources last July, and you've now gone through a couple of quarterly earnings cycles. Just at a high level, what have your first six months as a public company been like, and has anything surprised you? Yeah, it, it's been great, actually. Certainly, the the learning curve after you kind of push the proverbial opening bell button, right, continues to expand even more than maybe what you think. It, it, you know, you've worked so hard to get to the process where you're actually going to close, and you take a breath for what felt like 30 minutes, and then it was it was back to work and doing a lot of new things that as a private company, you know, you're not generally you know used to, and you'd built in some preparation for, but until you're in it, you're unsure, like, you know, prepping for your first earnings call, making sure that you're, how, how you're uh, delivering your first narrative and message and doing it in such a way that markets can start to get an understanding of what you do. And I think biggest learning point for me was the amount of time it was going to require educating research analysts and, and other street market participants on who we are as a company, what we plan to do, and then quite frankly, you know, educating them on why did we go public via SPAC, right? That's honestly the number one question that I get in almost every single meeting <laughs> was that you've got great fundamentals, historical profits, you know, great second quarter, great third quarter, you know, you're growing 20% top line. And I think we were 26% adjusted EBITDA in the third and, and ROEs over 20, the, you know, the, the overall market sentiment, I think, wasn't about all those great things. It was, yeah, but you're still a SPAC. And I think that we're starting to make a dent in that, right? And, and I think that all companies that are going through this process today have a different outlook, maybe some companies that were coming out three years ago, but you know, I would speak to any CEO who recently de-SPACs. I think they would agree like that's one piece. And the best way to work through that is to continue to prove yourself. Here's who we are. Here's what we're doing. Here's our story. And I even take another approach where rather than sit on my heels, I go and I approach this and I lean into it. And one of the things I tell them, and we I said this on Bloomberg and, and, and a few other commentaries um, where um, I was brought in on a television interview was that simply there were no shortcuts in a SPAC. I don't know why people assume that's the case. In fact, with us, it, I would argue strongly that this DSPAC or the SPAC process to get to DSPAC was higher scrutiny and harder and longer than a traditional IPO would have been. And so we're quite proud of the fact that during the last 12 months prior to that or 18 months when there was this massive amount of scrutiny on SPACs, even coming from research analysts today, 
you should look at that as almost a badge of honor of, of, of what we did and what we went through and a signal that, hey, these companies that are, that are despacking today are going through a very arduous process and deservedly so or not. I know we went through it and it made us a better company and at that layer of scrutiny made us even stronger. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation. And that's kind of what I wanted to get to next is just that, you know, Abacus Life, even before beginning the, the SPAC and despacking process, you know, you have been working on really kind of building momentum around this asset class that you've been working for all this while. And so I imagine you've been having conversations and having to kind of convince people on, on some level for a while now and on some level as well, because what you're talking about is dollars and cents. The proof is in the pudding when it comes to the numbers. I guess I'm interested in how prepared you felt like, you know, for some of those conversations. And I imagine it's it's a bit different for some of the other companies that are going through the process that are perhaps, you know, trying to push something that's a little more speculative or a few more years down the road. Sure. I mean, for us, though, the I think the level of scrutiny placed on us w wasn't all that dissimilar from maybe somebody who's got, as, as you highlighted, a different type of asset. Um, the challenge for me was education, right? It, it was, I'm going to have to spend the next 45 minutes on a call with someone and educating them first and foremost, not on our results, but in fact, let's take a step back and learn what a life insurance policy contract is how it operates, how it functions, why is there institutional asset management involved here? And then what is the ultimate driver behind the revenue and why does it exist? And I think that challenge was representative of, of it just took a little bit longer, even with strong earnings to get that story out and start to be received. I would suggest that's the same type of situation if, if you have maybe a different type of asset or even a more speculative asset you have to get back and, and appreciate that, frankly, no one really knows what you do and they don't care. <laughs> and, and if you approach it from that position, I think you'll be really successful, right? I would argue we've been very successful um, getting that message out, but it didn't happen overnight. And I know if you're in, in your business for as long as we are, like in the last 20 years, the expectations are, how do you not get this? Look at my numbers, look what's happening, like get in front of this. And then ultimately that's not gonna be the result. Right. It's going to be a very kind of long process. Now, from my perspective, I don't care if you're a SPAC or you went IPO regular way. That's what you have to commit to. And dedicating, I, I would tell you from a percent of my time now, well north of 50% of my time is myself just being an evangelist telling our story to anyone who will listen. And I would also tell anyone who's despacking over a six month, that next six months, take every call, take every one of them even if you're not sure. And it might be someone who is younger in age, but they've got their CFA and they got a small fund. Those are the folks you have to entertain now because they're the ones who will take a look at you now uh, versus some of the larger players. A lot of people want to come in and go, I'm going to shoot for the moon and get a call with JP Morgan. I'm like, I think you're wasting your time. Even if you get the call, I think you're better off working with some folks early on who can actually help you and provide guidance and, and, and actually get 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 an impact uh, for how the market might see you. Yeah, definitely. And then on the operation side, what are some of the things that you've managed to accomplish since closing your deal? There's such a huge benefit to being a public company in the sense of driving awareness to your brand. And there's also a feeling of legitimacy when you're speaking to your clients about being a public company and being transparent and what that means and due diligence changes because you can just hand them your last 10Q. Operationally, uh, we've seen our, our, our business grow fairly dramatically since 
we did officially despack and go public. And I would say that, you know, we've added another 30% in staff across the board, but we've also hired and added really key personnel in our financial division, our accounting division, our revenue division, and the types of people that quite frankly, I, I wouldn't be, have been able to afford as a private company. But because we were now a public company, we could do a couple of things. One, we could use our equity as cash, right? To provide them proper incentives to recruit really top-notch people. And two, again, there was a legitimacy of someone saying, okay, you may be a smaller business. We're still a small cap company. However, I'm willing to leave this mid or large cap company to come to you so that I can experience this growth range. And the fact that we were public was kind of the final piece to their decision process. So it was really helpful to do that. Now your costs are going to go up appropriately for that. But if you allocate for that, frankly, you will get the benefit of additional revenue that that top talent brings. And you launched your wealth management division, ABL Wealth in November. So I'm interested to hear how you expect that to change your revenue streams over time. Sure. The ABL Wealth Division was that simply evolved out of, we were receiving north of 10,000 inquiries now per month from policyholders. And we knew an idea of what their net worth, net worth was and their age. And only a small percentage qualified to actually sell their policy. So we were looking at opportunities to how better provide additional solutions to that group and other 30,000 plus RAAs and financial professionals that we work with across the country. So we had an RAA and a broker-dealer as part of an acquisition process for policies. We launched and built an association with a large RAA based out of Tampa called Dynasty Financial Partners, about an $80 billion TAM, and where they could assist us with back office marketing um, and strategy. And in that process, what we have found is, is that RAAs specifically are looking for opportunities to partner and to even be acquired by firms that are A, already public, B, have the ability to provide uh, lead gen for them and help them grow their business as we do. I've got 10,000 that I need to process every month. And then in addition to that, we do several hundred million dollars in payouts per year where a number of these uh, folks we're doing these payouts to don't have financial advice currently uh, in their estate. So you know we'll be able to provide that growth to that registered investment advisor. And then lastly, I would add one of the things that we launched for is that we're launching a 40 act mutual fund. It's actually an interval fund that we anticipate the launch in the next 60 days and having these types of unique investment products that were traditionally only available to an investor through a large private asset manager that we aggregated these policies for. We're now providing access to them via their RAA, via an, an investment fund, or of course they can invest in the stock. Got it. And just going off of that, do you expect it to be profitable on a standalone basis right away? Or is it more of a means of diversifying and capturing customers at the moment? Right. It, it is profitable now. So we, we were already had revenue from that vehicle because we had a few smaller note products. We had about, raised about 60 million in AUM pretty quickly and that generating a, a management fee. So there was already profit in the vehicle. and We were just expanding expanding products. Because I think what you're getting at is really important. We don't have to build in additional costs here to generate revenue. We already had revenue and then we're expanding upon that. I think a big thing for us is that when you think about your valuation of a company, we were looking at this and, and we knew that 
wealth managers have a higher multiple historically over even alternative investment managers or what we do on a balance sheet investment approach. And so that would also add a higher multiple to our business as we add more revenue there. Great. And looking back to the deal just a bit, East Resources did ultimately have high redemptions like most specs did uh, that were closing deals during the same period of time. So, you know, just looking at it from as you went into it and, and what you were looking for from kind of a pure cash standpoint, do you feel like Abacus Life got what it bargained for out of the transaction? We did. We walked into this knowing, because if you think about, you know, when we first announced versus when we closed, the SPAC market itself had already had a pretty significant adjustment. So we didn't approach this with some sort of rosy, rosy colored lens here. Our anticipation from the very beginning was when we modeled and we planned was, okay, let's assume that the entire trust redeems. And if we assume that occurs, what does our model look like? So even our initial forecast, I think we included some small amount of capital staying in, in the initial valuation forecast that we put in the proxy. But when you see that and then compare, I think there was 350 million initially. I, I think we ended up running our model and assuming something like 30 million would stay, right? So we, we, we approached this with the assumption that a good piece of this money. Now, for another reason why is that the initial SPAC was raised for oil and gas and we were a financial firm. So we, we had anticipated that there would be some additional redemption there. We're very grateful and thankful for the partners that did stay. Uh, they're great investors, and, and, um, but that did leave us with a much smaller float to deal with. And those are challenges that we're working through now, where we've got here, we have this great company that everyone wants to invest in. Just some might have challenges in accessing it, particularly institutions like mutual funds and others, adding our company to their purchase list because they need a higher float to accommodate that. Yeah, that's kind of what I wanted to get to next. And just looking at, you know, all the different options you were kind of looking at as you're going to towards the end of the, the despacking process. Now on the other on the other side of it, I, I saw you uh, that Abacus Life raised about 4.6 million in notes in November. I guess, how have the options for the for capital differed, you know, when you were in kind of the last few months before close and, and kind of uh, the, the months afterwards? And I guess, you know, just how, how are you sort of strategizing? What are the best ways to pull on that, that public capital? Sure. Being a public company did what we thought it would do in the sense that we did a baby bond uh, closed end of October for 35 million. It was 30 million institutional, I think around 5 million or just under 5 million in the shoe. And that was a triple B rated issue that came out. So, you know, to that end, like, and that lowered our cost of capital, right? So at close, we had a private credit fund as an investor that had a little more onerous covenants related to that debt, but we wanted to have a high profile private investor or private credit fund and name people knew. It closed because it gave people comfort that, hey, listen, there's more than here. So many people had redeemed. But we were actually able to refinance and pay off that debt in public markets at a savings of nearly 300 basis points. So, you know, that is just such a clean example to me of what you can do with public debt and public equity. Since then, you know, we, we've looked very, very closely at lots of alternatives to raise capital. Now we have a business that we didn't need to raise capital to be profitable. And I think that that's a little unique, right? We were already, we had you know, 20 consecutive years of positive net income, right? So we were just looking at how we were going to continue to reinvest our capital and use it in really interesting ways, which takes me to my next point, which I think ultimately has been um, really creative and really interesting. We also in December announced a buyback. And as far as I'm aware, I don't think there's ever been a DSPAC in its first year or ever that did a buyback. 
one, you've got to qualify because you have to have excess capital to do so. Right. And the second piece is, is that, you know, we felt we fell within the SEC safe harbor uh, requirements with, within that buyback. And that's, that's what we were looking at managing, but why would we do that to begin with? For a company that has a low flow, why are we pulling shares? And frankly, from our perspective, we looked at our investment returns. We said, okay, this is what we can earn on investment returns on the underlying contracts that we acquire or trade or tranche or, or assets that we manage. And we looked at the valuation of our stock based upon what our earnings were in the third quarter. And we were trading at a single digit multiple versus companies and other industries like whether it was insurance brokers, specialty finance insurance, or even alternative asset managers that were trading two plus times the multiple that we were for no reason, right? We actually had better earnings. And for us that it made perfect sense that we'll do a buyback and buy back our stock. And we saw exceptional returns from that, right? And now I think where we sit today, I know the exact number, but we've been trading in around 12. Any unique additional feature for us is that we're starting to see inquiries from the warrant holders that want to um, exercise their warrants because we've broke past 1150 and that adds additional capital to our balance sheet right so we're effectively selling shares at 1150 in that example hasn't happened yet but you know the point being is is that as people who have earnings as companies similar to ours who have earnings it's a great story long-term story they should look at a number of strategies to raise capital and some of them may not be in the investment banker's handbook right Every banker told me that this was a lunatic idea and that I should never do it and that it'll never work. And I'm like, I don't think you understand. This isn't about working, right? I see a price for our stock that is lower, significantly lower than anything else we could invest in, right? That's why we did this. And the traditional bankers out there now who've built their SPAC businesses will come to you and say, you have to clean up your warrants. To do that, you either write a check to all the warrant holders and buy them out, or you give them a sweetheart deal in relationship to converting them. We said, why would I do that, right? I have no desire to do that. There's four and a half years left on the warrants. Quite frankly, most of these folks redeemed and they've gotten a free option on my company. And therefore, if you want to be an investor in our company and you want to exercise at 1150, terrific. We're excited about that. We'd love to have you as an investor in our business. If not, I'll see you in five years. Great. And so you actually just answered one of my questions about the the buyback program, but I did want to take a step back and, and talk about something that you touched upon earlier. You know, when engaging with the market in general since close, both in capital raise discussions and just interacting with peer companies, do you feel like there still is that stigma to having gone public through a SPAC? And can you tell us a bit more about how you've been able to challenge that stigma? Yes, the answer is yes. There's absolutely, and, and, and it's, I think it's less about the stigma related to a quality of business. I, I, I don't think that's the stigma that is carrying forward, at least for us. The stigma is structure, right? The stigma is you've got warrants. That's such a horrific thing, right? And you have to address these right away and you know, potentially pay an investment bank seven figures to alleviate this problem because the warrants create an overhang on your stock and, and naturally then keep a lid on your stock price. My argument to that is always, maybe that's true. However, if you have a growing company and you have earnings, there is no cap, right? The warrant holders are the warrant holders. But I think that's the biggest piece of the stigma is structure and less about 
the fundamentals of the business. I think there's a lot of companies that have de spacked or are de spacking today that are great quality businesses that are faced with this kind of issue of what do I do with the warrants? What do I do with the structure? And all you hear in every meeting is that you have no liquidity, you have to fix the warrants, and how are you going to do that? Rather than, hey, tell me more about your business. And so what have we done? The first thing we said was, we're not going to do anything about the warrants. We're going to run our business. And we're even going to do a buyback because we have the excess capital. Changed everything. Now let's talk about my business, right? And when you start to get rid of those things out of conversations, I'm not going to spend an hour with you debating or talking to you about why the warrants are there or not. Fine, price that in, right? If the warrants are going to effectively you know, have an impact on ultimate pricing of the company because there's 18 million or however many warrants are issued on that particular company, then price that and you can price that into the stock, right? <laughs> it's not hard. So I think that's how we have really attacked it. We attacked it by being leaning into it and saying, yes, the warrant holders are there. Yes, we will work on that as time evolves, but we've done the hard part. The hard part is going public and the hard part is having a great business. That's the hard part. And that we're bringing to you a great growing business. And then I follow up with, and frankly, there was more scrutiny placed on me from a due diligence point of view, as I think, and again, this is an opinion, but I certainly believe this. And I think any, anyone who's gone through a SPAC process in the last year, I believe would agree with me that that is as challenging or more challenging a process than going public traditional way. So let's get past what this deemed stigma is, right? And move forward towards instead what a great business this is. Yeah, it's all really fascinating. And it also led into, you know, really what I wanted to ask about, which is, you know, that warrant issue. And it just so happens that um, this past week uh, at SPAC Insider, we've been kind of writing and analyzing the, the way in which a lot of DSPACs are dealing with their warrant overhangs a lot earlier, in part mm -hmm. because warrants are trading so cheaply for for many of them, right. they can just buy yeah. them off for 10 cents a warrant or, or whatever. Right. And you've already explained why that's not something you're interested in. But Abacus Life was one of the, the companies we kind of talked about as being like, well, I mean, they probably could do it, you know? Yeah. And so I, I find it interesting that, that it's um, a, a decision that you've made, at, you know, partially on principle, but also just the different ways you could direct that capital instead. I'm curious, you know, what you think about alongside the buyback would, you know, from your perspective, uh, like, for instance, a dividend be uh, a better use of that capital. It's something we've seen a, a small number of, of DSPACs do um, in, in the recent years. Um, and among the things that we've seen happen with the warrants is some sponsors uh, of the SPAC being willing to basically put up the capital to, to buy them at close rather than let them drift right. off um, with them. Yeah. I'm curious what your thoughts on, on that sort of trend as well. Sure. You know, the warrants for us, if you look at the pricing where they are now, I think they're approaching close to a dollar. Prior to us announcing a buyback, they were trading closer in the, I think, mid 30 cent range. And we we certainly ran all the modeling on, okay, what's the cost to repurchase the warrants or even convert them? When we weighed that cost, which to me ties into the same conversation around a dividend, right? The cost of that dividend doesn't come back to the company. When I'm, a, a dividend makes sense, I think, to a certain extent, if your growth rates are single digit, my growth rates are 20% with an ROE over 20. Why on earth would I ever pull that capital out of this business and not put it back into that business and grow, right? When you have that type of ROE on your underlying investment, the last thing you do is send capital out, right? And, and I think that when we then now understanding that premise is, okay, fine, then let's look at the warrants. 
there's no need to pay a premium on the warrants. Like, what is the warrant overhang? What's the concern, right? That you're not going to trade over $10 because there's a dilution. Where am I? I'm at 12. And so, you know, my point to that is simple. The warrant overhang is something that matters if you're trying to manage costs and expenses and your underlying revenue is not exceed that cost, right? But if my underlying revenue is 3x the cost, why would I do it? right? I'll just put that cost back into the business and grow and continue to grow earnings. And so from our perspective, there wasn't a rush on the warrant. I think a lot of companies strategy is we're going to go to market and everyone's going to tell us that the warrants aren't overhang and they don't want to invest in our company. And those guys, I can promise you that's not true. Not for everyone. It's not for us. There are lots of businesses that want to participate in what we're doing. There are lots of investors that want to participate in what we're doing. And now it's, well, how do we think strategically about this? And it, is there a world down the road where, you, you know, we might, we might look at the warrants differently? Yeah, of course, you always leave that flexibility open. Um, but as it stands today, there's such a spread between where the warrants are trading versus where the stock is. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, totally. And just looking at it, I guess another you know strategic avenue for you guys. There aren't a ton of companies that are doing exactly what you're doing in, in the life insurance space. But you touched upon how um, you've looked at um, potentially acquisitions as a way of expanding your advisor base. Uh, how how are you approaching that now? Um, you know, six months into being a public company, what do you see as the opportunities out there in M and A? There's there's a significant amount of opportunities within M and A because everyone, I, not everyone, but a lot of the companies we're speaking to are all looking at one, reducing their cost of capital in still a high interest rate environment. Even if rates come down some, it's still significantly higher than where it was. And so they're looking to run their businesses more efficiently. And you can do that with lower cost of capital and drive revenue. I think when you look at, let's just say the RIA roll-up space, it's predominantly driven by large private asset managers funding other vehicles. And then those vehicles go out and roll up these RIAs. And ultimately, if you look back, that was a phenomenal business model three years ago. It's a really expensive one today. And we're sitting in a really unique position where we approach, whether it's a registered investment advisor or even another asset manager, and we can say, we're already public. And by the way, our business is uncorrelated to yours, and we're growing at 20% top line, 26% adjusted EBITDA. With those type of growth rates, honestly, if you're willing to do a role equity on this acquisition, your equity grows in value, even if you're successful, regardless of the level of success you have, right? And I think that's really appealing to businesses that maybe are looking at going, gosh, we could be public or we're an alternative asset manager and, and this could make a lot of sense for us, but do we want to go through the painful process of going public to, to recognize that multiple or potentially be open to acquisition from a firm like ours. And what we have found is that there's been an, a very, very positive response thus far, even in the short amount of time that we've been telling that story by financial institutions, RAAs, and other asset managers. And then in general, what's the most exciting thing that you see coming up for Abacus Life in 2024? I think probably it's it's a few things, but We've pillared our business now into, into three, three areas, right? We have our life insurance acquisition. We have our private wealth and, and asset management area, which we've spent some time on, which we're absolutely thrilled about. And we see the growth there just being exponential. And then I would say the third area, which is super exciting. I know for me, because I get excited about these things, 
we have our third business called ABL Tech. Uh, and ABL Tech is a company that tracks and maintains all of our longevity and lifespan data. And then we also do things like mortality verification across the country. And as you do that, you get an expansion and understanding of the types of services that large endowments, pension funds, states, that state governments need to know and understand how to better apply this data as we go forward. We've had conversations with major government agencies on not just understanding mortality verification and process, but things like lifespan, you know, lifespan and longevity and how you apply that to things like, in our case, insurance acquisition or valuation. And then you start to think about financial planning. How much money is raised in these target date funds where you pick a random date out in the future, but you really not have any association with it? The biggest fear for retirees is what? Running out of money. If they had an accurate lifespan, we could actually design better financial products and allocations to that individual. And as we apply this data to things like lifespan and financial planning, I just couldn't be more thrilled to see how that's going to grow not just in our business, the industry, and I think have a fundamental shift in how financial planning is actually done. And this is all going to come out in 2024. I also think in our insurance acquisition space, one of the things from an adoption point of view, some of our biggest clients now are insurance companies and rather than traditional private asset managers. And so, you know, when we look at our business model, you know, the largest players in our space, i.e. the insurance carriers, are now involved in, in how we provide better uh, market valuation data to their own policyholders. And I think when, just from a fundamental basis of our business, life insurance is a $13 trillion industry. 90% of those policies lapse because they never pay a claim. 90. And what that means is, is that life insurance is just not being used the way it was designed. It's, it's being used like debt, not equity. People treat their life insurance policy like a credit card payment. And what we do is come in and educate them and say, your policy, just like your home or any other asset you have, has a net present value. We're just trying to provide that to you. What I'm absolutely thrilled about is that the carriers themselves are now buying into that strategy and understanding that, hey, if people understand the net present value of their life insurance policy at their current age, they'll probably buy more life insurance, right? So it becomes this kind of perpetuating vehicle where you end up selling more life insurance because people have a better understanding of what it is. And that comes down again, back to this lifespan and what we do in financial planning is, is I think, as a fundamental growth of our business, as people now talk about our business and abacus, uh, people are starting to see us as, oh, I get it. You're this lifespan and data company that's applying it to financial services and insurance. And I said, yeah, that's it. You know, I'm sure you, you guys, you know, crunch your models in a bunch of different ways, but I, it's also, it's always refreshing to hear, uh, you know, a company that's, that's had the results with this, particularly in, in uh, a market that's finding efficiency, that's not just saying, how do you do it? Oh, AI. You know, like yeah. just throwing that out there. It's like, that's okay. Yeah. We have an AI model and that's, that's. Yeah, we have an works. AI model. So we have a rule here in the office. No one's allowed to say AI. Um, <laughs> yeah. they're gonna, if they're going to use the term, use it correctly, which is large language models. Um, mm -hmm. And so I go, if you guys want to talk about large language models and how we spread lifespan curves, like we do do some cool stuff, but it's, it's the digestion of, of really massive amounts of data. That's exciting, I think. And that's where AI is probably actually going and what its true ability is. Like for, I'll give you an example. Both of you have a billion scenarios in your, in your own lifespan. 
right? That can happen. And there's moments in time and then there's health issues. And then, hey, it had some, you took a right instead of a left in your car, right? How do you calculate those? Traditionally, what you did was, was that you looked at someone's life and just looked at their medical files and you said, hey, based upon these scenarios, this is what we think will happen because you have cardiovascular disease, your parents had cardiovascular disease and their age of mortality was X. What we do now is that we're actually able to incorporate now much broader scopes of data where we were running like Monte Carlo is 10,000 scenarios. We now run a hundred million scenarios per second per individual. And what it really starts to tell you are some things that, I mean, I'll tell you that a lot of people don't want to hear, which is we're not living forever. I don't care what Google tells you. You're much more likely on a percentage basis. Once you get to age 65, there's a very high probability that you make 90, right? And that's about it. Like, <laughs> that's your number, right? Like there are reasons and other things to believe why you could live longer. Like we, I can now show you reams of data and show you there's never been a centurion over six foot tall. I can show you things like, you know, you're like all kinds of really, and yeah, I'm a lot of fun at a holiday party. Um, <laughs> you, you know, the impacts of, of certain things that you can do. I, I tell everyone this is if you want to have one of the largest impacts, I don't know how old your parents are. God bless. They're still alive. But if they're in their late sixties, seventies, early seventies, one of the greatest gifts you can give them is a, a second language and you force them, you do it with them. Teach them a second or even a third, depending on where you're from in the world, but teach them another language. And what does that do for them? It creates a social environment and increases communication, inspires their brain, right? To be more active. But what does it do for them physically? They travel, right? They're going to go to that country and want to learn and speak that language and let them be immersed. And it's not all that expensive. And those types of things have massive impacts on lifespan. And then as you see, what's become really popular now are topics like around health span, right? Getting the last 10 years of your life back through the sense of, of living in a healthier way, because in the United States right now, and it's not, it's not COVID driven, it's just fact driven, is that we've seen now for the first time where your lifespan is extending and your health span is declining. What that means is you're going to be in a really unfortunate state in the latter years of your life for a longer period of time, right? So at 83, 84, 10 years ago, you would have passed because of those symptoms. Now, modern medicine will keep you alive for another three years in a very uncomfortable state. So how do you fix that last three years? And there's things you can do now, learn a second language, improve grip strength, you know, some really basic things. So we take all that data and we're starting to play around with it and look at it in different ways, right? And then how can that be implemented so that it can be used for things like planning, fitness, and kind of open up that, that whole nother world. No AI in our office. <laughs>